I'm Steve Morgan, founder of Cybersecurity Ventures and editor-in-chief at Cybercrime Magazine, and we're here hacking in the Hamptons. I'm here with our second panel consisting of Jamil Farshi, EVP and CISO at Equifax since 2018, Paul Connolly, former chief security officer at HCA Healthcare, a Fortune 100 company, and the first information security officer at the White House from 1989 to 1997. And joining us later in the panel is former White House CIO and global cybersecurity expert and author, Teresa Payton. This production is sponsored by Evolution Equity Partners, an international venture capital investor partnering with exceptional entrepreneurs to develop market-leading cybersecurity and enterprise software companies. Jamil, welcome. Great to have you back on with us today. Thank you for having me. Paul, same to you. Uh, you've been on with us a few times. Always great to have you join us. Thanks for having me, too. So we are recording on Long Island, home of the Hamptons and also home of the world's first CISO, Steve Katz, who coincidentally lives real close to our studios. The chief information security officer role dates back to 1994, when financial services giant Citicorp, which is now known as Citigroup, set up a specialized cybersecurity office after suffering a series of cyber attacks from Russian hackers. And Steve Katz was anointed CISO. Paul, let me start with you. January 1st, 1983 is the so-called birth date of the internet. A few years after that, in 1987, you joined the White House. I believe it was in 1989 when they named you the uh, first CISO at the White House. And that was before Steve Katz became the world's first CISO at a major corporation. I believe you were an information security analyst at the NSA from 1984 to 1990. We'd like you to take us back to the pre-internet days and tell us about what security concerns look like at the time, both for the government and business. But first, let's hear uh, what Steve Katz said about that. The industry that exists today wasn't even on anybody's radar screen. It wasn't any part of anybody's wildest dreams or imagination. You didn't have the sophistication that you have today. You didn't have folks to gather credit card information, health information, and resell it. You didn't have a whole underground business of harvesting data and reselling it. So, Paul, uh, you know, what, what was it like back in the 80s, and what do you think of uh, what Steve had to say? Well, I, th I think Steve, Steve's comments about that era are so true. I first went into InfoSec at the National Security Agency back in 1984, and I could have never dreamed that it would become a key tool of warfare and, and something that causes billions of dollars of business losses and shut down city governments and hospitals and factories and become a board level issue. At that point, there was no internet as we know it, uh, no mobile phones, very little business to business connectivity. And I think most organizations were just beginning to tap into the capabilities of computing. And, um, and there was really little or no thought about privacy or security, at least in the, in the private sector. Everything was built to just be wide open for ease of adoption. And, and just, to, just to be clear, I, I was first detailed to the White House and started building the first InfoSec program. I was detailed to the White House Communications Agency. There's a couple different parts, or at least back in my day there were. And the White House Communications Agency, WACA, as they called it, one of the all-time great acronyms, they were a military organization. I, I was a DOD civilian, and they provided the national security systems, basically the systems that tied to the intelligence and military and diplomatic community and like the National Security Council, the White House Situation Room, the White House Military Office, and the President and, and Vice President. So our focus at that point was 
mainly how do we protect our communications on the military and diplomatic side, the intelligence information. And it was still during the Cold War, so we were worried about stopping the Soviet Union from spying on us. So a very different era. And, and probably, as you'll hear from Teresa, when she was there, it was a, a whole different uh, deal that she had to work through as well. So, Jamil, I want uh, to go back in time with you. Uh, you've been in the industry for quite a while. Share something that uh, Steve told us. And before we listen to what he had to say, when we were chatting, he told us that when he took that position at Citigroup years ago, he told his wife that uh, one of the understandings uh, he had was that they weren't going to announce to hack publicly until after he joined. What he didn't know is that he was going to be in the press release and it was going to be all of the news. And he found that afterwards. But I want to play a clip that ties into that and what Steve has to say about you know CISOs in general, which is still relevant today. Well, let's listen. Too many CISOs believe that if there's a breach, they're going to be thrown under the bus. If there's a problem, they're going to lose their job. So, Jamil, I know what Steve says isn't true of all organizations and their CISOs, but we still hear a lot about that. Is this still a worry for CISOs and any comments about, you know, what, what it's been like in the past? Yeah, it's uh, it's unquestionably still a uh, something that's top of mind for CISOs. It used to be far more um, of a worry than it is today, I think. Uh, certainly the timelines have changed because it's rare that an organization is going to get breached, be able to sit on it long enough before they can hire somebody and promote them into the CISO role uh, in advance of uh, notification. So that's certainly changed. But I, I think that a lot of the worries amongst CISOs today um, are really born by our own ambition and our own perception of what success looks like within the space. We've come up through the ranks it, 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 a breach is that seminal moment that that is sort of the the um, it, it exemplar for whether you've been successful in your capacity or not. And so I, I know of many CISOs who are in organizations that aren't taking security seriously enough, um, that aren't getting the investments that they believe they need and are willing or already have left for other jobs because they're worried that, look, I don't want to have that breach under my watch. But again, that's that's us. That's not necessarily the organizations themselves um, with a quick trigger to, be, you know, looking to get rid of the CISO as soon as an incident occurs. Um, it's more borne by our, our own desire to be as successful as we can and not have sort of the, the stain of a breach on our resume. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, I, I can't think of any other crime that's treated that way. I mean, generally, you know, we're sympathetic to victims. And CISOs are as much victims as their organizations. You know, uh, most of the breaches I'm aware of, and I, and I know a lot of these CISOs, they're fantastic. They do a great job. You know, you can't tie, you know, that crime to them. So, you know, I guess it just goes along with the job. And that's part of why uh, being a CISO is such a difficult job. It's true. The, the one thing I'll say, though, is that I, I think part of the reason that this situation has manifested itself is because it's difficult to measure security. Like it's difficult to really, I mean, you say, hey, I know these CISOs and they do a great job, yet they were victims of these breaches. And that I know that is true in, in many cases. The challenge though is how do we actually know that? Like, do, uh, you know, when I, I present to the board or my executive team and we've got our measures and things like that, they aren't 
crystal clear. It, it's not like a football team that goes out there and, hey, I, I we won because we had a higher score than the other team when the, you know, when the clock hit zero. Uh, and so I, I think as we evolve as a discipline, the, the better we can get at being able to articulate and measure what success and, and what good really looks like, I think it will help to continue to, it'll, it'll reduce that sort of risk and, and, and mental bias that we have around CISOs that have been at organizations that have experienced the breach. So Paul, I want to ask you about something that ties into what Jamil just said, and I guess ties into any discussion having to do with cybersecurity, uh, and that would be budget. And I'm curious uh, to know what that looked like for you uh, and your colleagues back in the early days of fighting cybercrime compared to what it might have looked like years later. You, you've been a CISO for many years at HCA Healthcare, a Fortune 100 company. Let's listen to what Steve Katz uh, remembers Citicorp telling him when he first signed on in 1994. You have a blank check to set up anything you want. We want to make sure it doesn't happen again. And we want you to build the best information security department anywhere in the globe. A blank check, I don't think we hear that uh, often from uh, CISOs and security teams. Now, of course, you know, he was uh, building security out. Maybe that's a little bit different than, uh, you know, today. Yet, at the same time, I'm curious, I know that the CEO at Bank of America went on the record a couple of times saying that cybersecurity was the only unlimited budget in the company. Maybe that's an exaggeration, maybe not, because at the end of the day, who's not going to respond to a, a breach or a cyber attack, no matter you know what your budget looks like? But I'm curious, Paul, uh, if you could speak to budget, um, you know, the the issue of budget, and has it changed at all? It's definitely changed a lot, and and actually, uh, my conscience has bothered me, so I've got to clarify something in the first question. When I was at the White House, I was never actually called the CISO. I was called the the ISO, and it wasn't until Steve later established that title that I think they created a CISO position. But while I was there, I was called the Information Security Officer. And you know, I've I've been through the same cycle twice, where I was the person who came in and started a program, both at White House Communications Agency and then again at HCA Healthcare, as you mentioned, Steve. And in both cases, at first, I didn't even have a budget. Um, I I had to fight for dollars out of the IT budget. And I was not always successful. And it was really only after helping our senior leaders understand the risk and educating them that we, number one, got our own budget. And, and at first, it was pretty much a blank check. Um, I even had a CFO tell me once that you know nobody wants to be the CFO who said no to something that ended up causing a breach later. But I, I didn't, I never felt like that was a healthy thing, although it was definitely uh, great to be able to come in and ask for something and, and get the answer yes. I always felt like it was a credibility builder for me to not take advantage of that and ask for the world. So I, I, I always felt like within our team, we were the hardest critics of our budget and we would not take anything forward unless we absolutely had to do it. And, and that was really prevalent in, in my, my years at HCA because it's a healthcare provider and every dollar we were asking for for information security was a dollar that we were not getting you know a brand new MRI for one of our hospitals or, or whatever the case may be. So we really scrubbed it. And um, as a result of that, our, our CEO, our CFO, 
they really trusted our team's uh, judgment. And, you know, in, in recent years, I think the evolution that I've seen is that as the education level of our, of our company leaders has grown, and to a point that Jamil made earlier, the, the better we've gotten at measuring success and return on investments, it's become more of a business decision, uh, similar to what the CIO goes through for the IT budget, or maybe the HR officer goes through for HR budget. We would come in and talk about the risks and where we felt like we needed to make investments and what we felt the impact of those investments would be and what the potential impacts would be if we did not make those investments. And it became a much healthier conversation. Can I add on to that? Sure. I, I think what Paul said is spot on. Um, at first, yes, there are examples of companies that, and I've personally been a beneficiary of this that uh, that that do provide you know blank check in, in in the wake of an incident. So sure, you've got a lot of latitude for investment and so forth. But but there's something that's far more important about what what Paul said that that really resonates with me. And it's something I communicate with my team consistently, and that is being responsible. Like to be a leader in security doesn't mean that you're the best at finding and buying a ton of tools and you know and hiring a quintillion people it's about being a good business leader and and being responsible about the spend because it, you know, look you've got to keep shareholders in mind you've got to keep other facets of your business in mind and every dollar you spend like he said on security is the dollar you can't spend somewhere else. And I think there's this notion within security, because I hear it all the time, oh, Jamil, you're so lucky because you've had unlimited budgets and blah, 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 that having all this money and having the availability is 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 what everyone should should strive for. And companies should just keep spending more and more and more on security. I, I don't believe that to be true. And and oftentimes, I think it's it, 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 it puts us in a position where we just want to spend and, and you just become you know this whole drunken sailor and buying every tool not actually configuring them or installing them correctly, but just I've got another brand name, another you know point solution for something else. To be a leader in security, to be the best, you've got to be able to balance both of those things and optimize your program. It's not just about how much money you can you can you know throw down the drain. So Jamil, you were starting to to head into the boardroom uh, a little bit earlier, talking about uh, you know setting expectations. You know how you do that. Steve Katz uh, spoke to that. Um, you know C-suite boardroom executives, his interaction with them. Let's listen to a clip. The CISO has to be confident enough to stand up and say, "Look, I can help reduce risk. I can minimize risk. I cannot make it go away." I'm not a CISO, but I can't imagine uh, being in a boardroom or talking to uh, my CEO and telling them that I can't make it go away. Um, you know, that that's scary. Um, but, I, but I guess you have to. Is this the message, Jamil, that, that you and your contemporaries are sending today? And is it any different uh, than the message that you were sending, you know, a decade ago or even 20 years ago? It, it is. If, it, if, uh, if anyone is not doing that, then I don't know that they're doing a doing a great job. I mean, look, it's I'm, I'm a big believer in using every exposure to the board and the executive team, the CEO and so forth to, to teach them a little bit about security. I mean, it, it's not a secret that a lot of executives aren't well-versed in security. And so we should use every opportunity we have to be able to help bolster that knowledge. It's going to make our own lives easier and it's going to make them more informed. And the first message 
the first message that I try to communicate to every company, every board that I've ever been at is that no company is immune to breaches, irrespective of how much uh, how much money we put behind it, how much focus we put behind it. There is a chance that this these controls will be bypassed, and and you know we're going to have a have a bad day. I think the difference between you know earlier in my career and today, I can't speak to 1994. I was I was, uh, I was sophomore in high school, but um, but as of today, the difference is that is that um, the executives and the boards they're listening more. Um, we actually have a seat at the table in many cases to to articulate this, whereas back in the day we did not. It was rare for a CISO to present to the board or, or have airtime with the with the CEO. So I think that the as things have evolved and you know media is covering it more and more companies have been compromised and so their contemporaries are are feeling the pains of of incidents and things like that. That that we have uh, our, our voice is louder and our our voice is more well respected. Uh, than it was back in the day, but we need to, whether it's this message or any other one, um, we need to use every opportunity we have to continue to inform them about the changes within the space and to make them more aware of what some of these core controls are and what the risks may be. Because at the end of the day, these folks, business leaders in general, they are good at understanding risk. I mean, a large portion of all of our jobs, whether you're a CFO or a GC or a leader of a business unit, is managing risk. And and there are a few things that are certain in business. And so we take risk with, with all with almost every decision that we make. So they get that part. It's just being able to make them more informed about the cybersecurity components and the technical aspects and how it can manifest itself into potential incidents. And I think that if I can add quickly, that ties into the earlier point where you were talking about could a CISO be in a precarious situation if their company had a breach? If you've been doing the right thing to educate your leaders they and being transparent, they understand that there's no foolproof approach and that no matter how good you are, some things can happen. So Jamil, listening to you, it, it, you know, it, it's hard to conceive of what a CISO's day looks like. You can be talking to a boardroom executive or a CEO at that level, but then you're back working with your technologists and you know, you're speaking a completely different language. And Steve Katz spoke to us about that. Interestingly, he had a technical background. He was originally a programmer, but he also spoke to the importance of surrounding himself with top tech talent. Let's listen to what he said. I am not the technology guy. Even in 95, I couldn't tell you the four divisions of COBOL. So I hired a really, really, really strong uh, security technology guy. So that's a short clip, but Steve was talking to us at length about uh, delegating, about how important it was, despite the fact that he had a technical background, to you know have a really strong team in place to rely on them. And I know every CISO's background is different, but I'd like to know from you, Jamil, how, how much does a CISO need to delegate in terms of the more technical aspects of their position? And, and is it difficult for a CISO who may actually have a highly technical background? Look, his experience isn't markedly different from most of ours. I mean, I got into security. My my first foray into security was when I compromised my my college. Uh, you know, got a bunch of credentials, took it to the <laughs> dean. I'm like, hey, we got this security weakness, and uh, fortunately, he didn't uh, expel me, and I I got a fellowship from it. But but most of us have come up 
through the technical ranks. And, uh, and, and we, we've done that because we're passionate about it. We love technology. We, we, you know, we think it's fun and cool and all the opportunity it presents and so forth. I think what's happened in the last you know, decade or two, um, certainly in the last few years, is that our role has morphed dramatically. It used to be purely, you know, purely technical. And we were, you know, we were the ones down in the boiler room and no one knew what the heck we were doing uh, with all of our technical gadgets and stuff like that. But the role has evolved to the point where it's much more about communication and it's much more about business and understanding those trade-offs and understanding how to articulate complex things in a, in a, in a, in a more digestible way. And, and so you've got to build that muscle to be able to switch on between, hey, I'm talking to the CEO and so I've got to communicate what you know, multi-factor authentication or OIDC, whatever this stuff is in a, in a way that they can understand. And then transition to your next meeting where you can, you know, get into the weeds and understand this stuff. But, and this is a huge, but I don't care what capacity you're in, uh, you know, technical or otherwise, you will not succeed without delegation. Like you are not the lone ranger. You are not the, you know, a CISO hero that's going to unilaterally and singularly have every right decision and know every nuance of every technology and threat actor and things like that. It is fundamentally impossible. So I think that the, the key to success is surrounding yourself with not just top technical talent, but great technical, but, but great talent across the board for your entire program, whether it is on the communication side, or you've got your, you know, strong finance people, or you've got your strong uh, folks that that understand uh, training and awareness and things like that, you need to have a, a well-rounded team, and you need to rely on them because look, they're the they should be the experts in that area. If you're the one positioning yourself as the one who knows everything about everything, then I can assure you that in the long run, you you will fail. So, Paul, if there's one word that I could come up with that would place us into a gray area where, you know, different people would chime in with, you know, uh, something, you know, completely different to say, uh, it would be risk. So it's not cybersecurity, it's not cybercrime. Let's listen to what Steve Katz had to say about risk, and then maybe you can help put that in focus for us. Data security, information security, information risk is a business risk issue, not a technology issue. Technology doesn't have risk. Security doesn't have risk. Businesses have risk. So, Paul, what's your takeaway from this? Is he driving home a point about securing our businesses more so than our technology? And how important is that to understand? Well, I, I completely agree with the point that Steve was making. Um, I, I think as long as cybersecurity is viewed as an IT issue or the CISO's job, uh, we're at a huge disadvantage and probably not going to be as successful as we need to be. I think the real watershed change is when business leaders in different areas of the organization all recognize that they also own it. And the CISO is a partner as opposed to being a policeman or an evangelist or something like that. It's uh, when we get the company leadership, the board, the business unit leaders to all take ownership and engage together as a partnership, that's when I think the CISO can be the most effective and, and really drive the kind of activity that needs to happen to make an organization successful. 
Jamil, uh, I can't let this conversation go by without bringing up ChatGPT just because it's in the headlines, you know, AI, it's a, and I have you here and you're just so knowledgeable. So maybe this doesn't tie in, maybe it does to the to the histories of, of CISOs. I'll, I'll try to give some perspective to it. When we spoke to Steve Katz in 2020, this is well before these headlines. Now, AI, of course, has been around for a while. But, uh, you know, we didn't we didn't have the same awareness of it. But it was interestingly top of mind for him when he talked about, you know, what he would do if he was back as a CISO today. Let's listen to this clip. If I were back driving the bus today, I'd bring on a bunch of data scientists and say, let's figure out how we can do this a lot smarter. We need to do a much better job on bringing AI and ML into information security. We're still playing catch up. So I thought that was interesting. I'd like your perspective, Jamil, on AI and ML, the past as far back as you might be able to, the present and, and the future as far as cybersecurity goes. Yeah, it's not it's not new. It's not new at all. Um, in fact, I remember in my first job out of college, um, I was at I was at NASA and um, and I worked on a project with uh, statistical based intrusion detection, which is, you know, it's a first gen kind of AI way back there. That was like two decades ago. Fast forward to today, we've got almost every one of our technologies has AI built into it. I mean, whether it's identity or it's DLP or it's threat detection, I mean, there's some form of, of AI in there. What's new today is generative AI and large language models. And I think when I look at this stuff that there's a ton of opportunity there. Do we need good data scientists and stuff like that in, in this space? To, to help um, build it out and evolve it for sure. But we should also be leveraging our the vendors community because they've invested a ton of money, certainly as of late, in, into this space to be able to make our, our lives a lot easier with, with these kinds of insights and so forth. But I see it ultimately being a winner for us because despite all the doom and gloom out there around um, how bad actors can take advantage of this and throw all kinds of you know, sophisticated attacks at us and and um, and whatever. I think when you look at at AI, and certainly when you look at generative AI, the 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 two things that truly stand out that that make that technology sing is data and your models. And when I look at it, what who has better understanding of my environment to be able to build those models? And who has more data about my company and the behaviors therein than me to be able to train those models? Nobody. The bad actors sure as heck don't. So they can use this. And I think in the short term, you know, they'll have a bit of an advantage as we digest this technology and operationalize it and, and put it all into place. The bad actors may have a short-term advantage, but I think in the long term, uh, this should serve as a boon for most security teams. And if you look at just basic things like your security operations center and things like challenges we have today, we've had forever, like alert fatigue, uh, these kinds of technologies should help us dramatically um, solve for those problems and allow our people to be able to move upstream and focus on more challenging issues that we have to be able to really accelerate our, our progress and maturity as, as uh, security programs. So, Paul, I want to ask you about the flip side of the coin, and maybe not just AI and ML, although I'd certainly like to hear about that, but just in general, the 
tools that are available, both the sophistication uh, and the widespread audience that has access to these tools. It could be AI and ML. Uh, it could be uh, ransomware kits. I mean, you know, a novice can launch uh, an attack now. Uh, there are just uh, such a wide array of tools that were not available to the, to the cyber criminals in the past. Well, it's, it's, it's funny uh, that this topic uh, we're talking about because uh, earlier today, one of my brothers, uh, my brother Michael is a best-selling author. He was on the Today Show talking about a group of authors who are together filing a lawsuit against OpenAI about copyright infringement. And that's just, you know, one of the many uh, concerns uh, of, of using it. But I totally agree with what Jamil said about the capabilities that AI gives us as the defenders and uh, the opportunities it creates for our organizations. But like any other breakthrough technology, it's going to be used for good. And it's also going to, people are going to figure out how to use it for bad. And um, like you said, um, there's already lots of evidence and I'm sure it's going to get better and better, but the use of it for social engineering, uh, you know, phishing emails, uh, spear phishing, whaling, all of that, it gives the opportunity to be so customized and really develop something that hones in on a specific audience, which is going to make it probably more successful. And, and on our side is a reason that we've got to improve the way that we're educating people to make them aware of it. I think it's also going to enable uh, well, we, we, we hear about the, the deep fakes, you know, the audio and vi video use of AI for, for uh, scams, uh, improved password attacks, um, other types of technical attacks. And as you said, Steve, it basically what it's going to do is, or is already doing, it's going to enable more participants. You'll, you'll have people entering into sort of the dark side who don't need to have some of the skills that people have traditionally had to, to be the, you know, the hackers, they'll be able to take advantage of tools that will do a lot of the work for them and still conduct very sophisticated attacks. So I think it's going to be the usual cat and mouse game where maybe the bad guys advance and then the good guys catch up and maybe take a step forward. And then the bad guys uh, up the bar on their side. Yeah, I think, um, look, I, I just did a um, an update on this to my board of directors a few weeks ago about the AI risks and threats. And, and I'll give you a summary of what I told them. Like, I, I think that the, the risks fall into effectively three categories. It's the velocity of attacks, I think, will increase. I think the, the volume of attacks will increase. Both of those largely because of what Paul just said around there's a reduced barrier to entry, I think, in this space with AI. Like it's much easier for some rando that doesn't know anything about coding or technology to just to script out some um, malware and be able to launch it off to you know any number of organizations. The other piece of it is the quality of the attacks. And this is the one that probably worries me the most. You know, you look at basic things like social engineering. I mean, look, it's it's hitting companies left and right. It has for years. We, MGM was in the news. Caesars. The, the, it looks like that was the the vector there. But when you when you think about the capability and the quality of those types of attacks, where you can say, "Hey, I want to be Jamil. Do all the research on him. Get as much information as you can, and craft up a phishing email that's going to be perfectly targeted to him." but then do it at scale and do this for every single person at the entire company, that's scary. And when you overlay that with some of the deep fake kind of stuff that you can that you can do as well there, which is 
sort of mind-bogglingly effective nowadays in, in terms of its accuracy. Like that's really, really worrisome. Um, so I think when you marry up the social engineering aspect that we all struggle with already today, you know, without the, the AI capabilities, marrying those in coupled with the fact that it's just simplistic to be able to write malware nowadays because it will can do it for you. Um, I, I think it does present a lot of short-term challenges for, for all of us. Well, Jamil, the reason I, I asked you in particular, and you too, Paul, because we talk to so many CISOs, but the two of you are, are two of the best out there, and, and we really appreciate your time. It's because we think this position is so critical, and it's going to evolve. And, I, and I'd like to uh, get both of your thoughts. Maybe we'll start with you, Jamil, on you know where, and any thoughts about the past and the evolution, but where do you see the role going? What is it going to look like to be a CISO you know, three years, five years down the line? It's changed so much. It's changed so much since I started in this in this space. So some of the things I said before, we now have a seat at the table, most of us. And um, and for those who don't, I think that it's imminent that uh, that that you will. Um, we used to be in the boiler room. Now we're we're in the boardroom. Look, I, I'm a I'm a director myself now. Um, it, it it is uh, it. I would have never in a million years expected when I started in this field that you would see cybersecurity experts on multi-billion dollar company uh, boards as, as directors. That's huge. We've got c countries, you know, left and right that now have cybersecurity czars or ministers that are focused on trying to bolster uh, security for the entire country. I, I was just in Australia a couple of weeks ago, um, actually yeah, two weeks ago, and you know, they have a cyber minister who's saying that they're going to become a leader in cybersecurity by the year 2030. To hear comments like that and have strategies developed to be able to position a, a, a whole country as a leader within this space, I think that's a sea change from where we used to be. And then, you know, more and more companies are putting CISOs as direct reports to the CEO, like I am here at Equifax, which puts us puts us in a position to have more authority, more responsibility, and more ability to affect change than we ever have before. Like all these things are 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 just huge changes within the space. And I think the last piece is we've seen the role evolve. So it's not just purely I'm the CISO and it's just about the 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 technical cyber threats. If you look at my portfolio, it's you know, I, I have physical security, responsible for fraud, crisis management, privacy, in addition to the cyber function. I even have two PLs. Like the, I think more and more businesses are starting to see that the skills um, and experience that CISOs can bring to the table can afford a lot more value and a lot more benefit to companies than just the pure play um, historical cyber stuff. So I, I think all of those things are good. But there's a big but with that. With that increased visibility, responsibility, uh, accountabilities that we have, comes a, comes a lot more um, comes a lot more onus on us, and it shines a light on us. And so, you know, nothing comes from nothing. And so, as the role has evolved, we need to evolve ourselves as well. And so, when you see things like the new SEC cyber rules, you know, NYDFS all of these new uh, requirements that are coming our way, it's one thing to say, hey, look, this is tough. It's a brave new world. We, we, need, to, we need to try to tackle these things. It's another thing altogether, though, to, to look at those as, as negatives. Those are what comes with this role. Like that, that is the new CISO role. And just like a CFO who has to sign on the dotted line 
that your financial statements are accurate or risk potentially going to jail, there's not much difference here nowadays. Like we've evolved into that role. And so if we want that seat at the table, if we want that control, which we've all been asking for, we've all been desiring for all of these years, that we also have to take the good with the bad and, and recognize that with that with that elevation of importance in our in our capacity um, comes additional duties and additional risks. And so I, I just hope that we'll take that in stride as a community, continue to evolve and develop and learn and grow, uh, because I think if we do, the sky's the limit for this role. So you were talking about Australia. I'm, I'm assuming you were talking about Claire O'Neill. Uh-huh, I was. She's fascinating. We had an opportunity to uh, visit her and, and interview her, and I, I never would have imagined that we'd have I don't know if you can call her the equivalent of a CISO for the country, uh, but you know that that type of oversight, or that you know a country would ever need that. So she, she's a real trendsetter. Paul, I thought it was interesting listening to Jamil just now, and he, and he touched on so many important things. But one of the things he mentioned uh, is that he's responsible for physical security as well, and there's not a lot of CISOs who have that responsibility. You did. Um, I, I know you did, and we've talked about this in the past. So maybe you could touch on that if you think uh, you know we're going to see more of that going forward. And just any thoughts you have, uh, you know, on the evolution of CISOs and, and what you think uh, it might look like in the future. Well, I, I loved everything that Jamil said. I couldn't agree more about how the role has evolved. Um, as as we mentioned earlier, I first started in a, a basically a CISO role uh, back in 1989, and. I've had 28 years in the role in two different organizations. I've had 34 members of my teams become CISOs. So I've always been like a student of the role and the evolution of it. I, I really think we're at a key moment in time where we need to up our game, or as Jamil said, we've, we've got to evolve to take advantage of this opportunity. I started off in the, like, like Jamil, in the boiler room, so to speak, kind of behind the curtain in IT and then evolved to where I was moved out of IT. And then we brought in privacy, we brought in data governance, brought in physical security, um, got a seat at the senior leadership table, became you know a standing agenda item of every board meeting. I feel like that rise, that evolution to operate at the senior leadership table and the board level is the moment that we've got to grasp today. And I, as Jamil said, I don't think everybody is there yet. Not all the boards are there, nor are all the CISOs there. So I really feel like to make that happen, we have to step up, out of step out of the sock or the boiler room and really focus on how do we operate at that senior level. And to me, it's not that we need to get better as cybersecurity experts, we need to get better as business leaders. We need to understand the company strategy. We need to be literate, literate on the financials. We need to get involved in other things. I mean, I had a, a really forward-thinking CEO who put me in a leadership role in our company's DEI program and um, employee engagement program. And those things I felt like just made me a, war, a more well-rounded executive. And I think that's what we need to, to operate at that level. And not only do we need to do that, but we need to think about how we're developing the next generation of CISOs so that they're ready to operate at that level as well. Paul, I, I couldn't have said it any better. Uh, and as always, I really appreciate you coming on with us today. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And great to hear your comments too, Jamil. 
Jamil, again, thank you. Really appreciate your time. And uh, this is going to be so helpful for many people who uh, listen to this panel. This is great. I really appreciate the opportunity and um, the opportunity also to take me back on memory lane. (laughs) (laughs) Thinking about where we used to be back, back in the day. So this is great. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Teresa, welcome. Great to have you back with us. Oh, it's always great to be with you, Steve. Thanks for having me back. So, Teresa, as I mentioned earlier today, the Internet was born in 1983 and the world's first CISO emerged in 1994. When we talk about the evolution of our industry, which includes security products and services, how important was that first CISO? And and before you answer, I want to play a clip for you of Steve Katz, the world's first CISO. Let's listen. I was running information security at Morgan Guarantee or J.P. Morgan Chase. I'm not sure what, what the title was at the time. And the rumor on Wall Street was that uh, Citicorp had been hacked and got a call from a recruiter asking if I'd be interested in speaking to Citi about a position in information security. It's going to require board approval because the hack did get board attention and the title would be Chief Information Security Officer, which was the first time that uh, title had ever been used. So, Teresa, I know it's a big question, but, you know, how, how have things changed o- over the years since 1994 and, and Steve? Yeah, it, it's so interesting because so much has changed, but yet so much is still the same. Um, so, for example, yeah, it, back in 1994, we didn't even have the, sm- the first smartphone. We didn't have the first iPhone, which came out in 2007. Precursor to that was the BlackBerry when it had web-enabled features to it. And, you know, so the technology has changed and how we use technology in our work lives, in our daily lives, has changed significantly. The tactics of cyber criminals have changed significantly. But at the end of the day, when you really come down, you look at the forensics, you look at the investigations, you look at incident response, what does it all boil down to? It's the human user story and typically the favorite technique, even though it's changed, is social engineering of the human by the cyber criminals looking for those vulnerabilities, whether it's the human element or the systems themselves. Um, So it's just so interesting how much has changed in technology, but yet how much still stays very much the same. So, Teresa, you're in touch with so many people in our industry. I know you uh, know a lot of CISOs uh, who have been around. Today we had Paul Connolly on with us. He was the first information security officer at the White House. Uh, you served uh, in the White House as CIO. Uh, how important were these you know, early CISOs, the first wave of CISOs that ultimately led to the position we have today? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question because we had somebody playing that role prior to the title, but we just didn't call them that. And it really speaks to the elevation of the importance. So instead of saying, hey, a senior information security architect or a senior network analyst, it was recognized finally that you needed to actually elevate the role, elevate the responsibilities, um, elevate the conversation. So by creating this chief information security officer, this first role was so vital and important because it was the first real recognition at the biggest organizations around the globe that this is not a problem going away. And the conversation around this problem needs to be elevated if we ever want to have a hope of being proactive instead of reactive. 
Teresa, there's so many people in our industry. I mean, millions. We have millions of openings. So many more people are going to join. We have so many cybercrime fighters in so many different positions. We uh, did a study earlier this year, and we estimate there's about 32,000 CISOs worldwide. So it's a, it's a relatively small number, but these are incredibly uh, important people. And I'd like to know from you just how important uh, they are. They're incredibly important. And what I want to say to people who are sort of performing the role of CISO, but maybe you don't have the title, um, just hang in there, have hope. I mean, you may just be in an organization where they have a different point of view of how they give out a chief executive title. And so you may be operating in that role and just not have the title, but you know, keep, stay with it, stick with it. And you know, eventually you will get that CISO title that comes with the responsibility that you have. Um, the role is so important. And what I would say to anybody who is either in role now or aspiring to be in that role, just understand you have to be a student of your job. So just because you get elevated into the role, you're not done. Your job is going to be constantly changing, constantly evolving, and you have a sense of responsibility to turn around behind you and to motivate, encourage, and actually professionally develop the people behind you and make sure you've got a great succession plan in place for when it's time for you to be promoted, for you to retire, or for you to move on so that somebody's ready to take your place or to be elevated at another organization. So Teresa, you're such a great ambassador for our industry. You interface with so many people, founders and CEOs of cybersecurity companies, CISOs at Fortune 500 Global 2000 companies. Mm -hmm. I know you're very active with young people. And so, you know, we, we have such a fondness and appreciation for what you do. Before you go, any words directly to the CISOs that you'd like to share? I know you're tired. So make sure you're not just investing in tools, technology, processes, and your people. Make sure you're investing time in yourself. Um, you need to sharpen that saw, so to speak, as Covey would say, to make sure that you can be playing your A game every single day. I and mean, this is like playing in the Super Bowl every day of the year. And uh, if you need help, just make sure you reach out to your friends, your colleagues, ask them for advice, use them as sounding boards, tap into the brilliance of other people. Um, and again, just make sure you're taking care of yourself because we need you to stick, stay with it and fight the good fight. Teresa Payton, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on such an important topic. I'm Steve Morgan, founder of Cybersecurity Ventures and editor-in-chief at Cybercrime Magazine. Hacking in the Hamptons is sponsored by Evolution Equity, an international venture capital investor partnering with exceptional entrepreneurs to develop market-leading cybersecurity and enterprise software companies. Visit evolutionequity.com to learn more. You can keep up with all of our media at cybercrimemagazine.com. Stephen R. Katz of East Northport, New York, passed away on December 2nd, 2023, at 81 years of age. A graduate of NYU, Steve dedicated his life to pioneering advancements in cybersecurity, beginning with his industry-first appointment to Chief Information Security Officer for Citigroup. His obituary is posted on the Brueggemann Funeral Home website.